Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. This Saturday is the Juneteenth holiday, and there will be celebrations, parades, and parties all over town. The multimedia art collective Punk Black will host one such celebration, and we'll talk with Vaughn Phoenix, the founder of Punk Black. Also, photographer Arvin Temkar spent a year documenting the Punk Black Art Collective, and City Lights producer Summer Evans will tell us about Temkar's photo exhibit, POC, Punks of Color. And later this hour, we'll hear from Afua Richardson and Brian Stelfreeze, comic book artists and illustrators from the world of Black Panther. But first, Atlanta's power punk pop outfit, Le Cibu Grand, was recently named one of the top 100 bands to watch in 2021 by Alternative Press. With lyrics that take on issues like racism, social justice, and reproductive rights, many critics think their music is hitting the right note at the right time. This Saturday, the band is playing their first show in over a year as part of Punk Black's pop-up Juneteenth celebration. Singer Tyler Simone Moulton and bassist John Renault are the songwriting duo behind La Cibu Grand, and they join us now via Zoom. Tyler Simone and John, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you for that introduction, Kim. We're really glad to be here. I'm very happy to chat with you both, and I know that even though you've known each other for many years, your musical collaboration is still fairly new, and I was wondering if you could share the story of how you met and then re-met. Uh, yeah, so John and I have known each other for over 10 years. I met him originally when he worked with my mother, and I would go into work and visit my mom and see John being John. I and was being John. <laughs> he was always super nice and friendly, but we got reacquainted a few years ago when we went to see a show at the Earl separately, because or he was with his wife and I was with my friend, and we ran into each other. I pointed him out from the crowd. I was like, hey, are you John Renault? And he said, Jennifer, which is my sister's name. (laughs) (laughs) And didn't know who I was all the way, but uh, I made it clear it was Tyler, the other sister. I did recognize her, but last time I had seen her, she was like in high school. So, you know, it was probably seven or eight years in between since I had seen her. So she had changed a little bit, but I it didn't take me long to dial in my <laughs> memories. But it was very exciting to see Tyler again and see that she was like having fun in the city and, and at a cool show. It was uh, the Pains of Being Pure at Heart, which are a Brooklyn indie band. So it was a super great night. You know, it was really great to see her. And she had mentioned that she was kind of interested in music. And I, I think I may have seen on Facebook that she was singing with... Uh, Dylan uh, Michael and the family. I was in that band at the time. So yeah, you did mention, you were like, oh yeah, I see what you've been doing. And actually you did mention, you were like talking about Cadillac Jones, your other band, and said that it might be cool if we did something in the same vein as like MIA or Santi Gold. Mm-hmm. And then we were talking about possibly collaborating and that's kind of how the conversation got sparked. That's quick. So your first time seeing each other again after 10 years, you were like, let's talk music, <laughs> let's make music. Yes. You know, the kind of talk you sure, have a lot of Sure, sure. I'd love to you. work with you yeah, one day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I we should I do should. something together. Yeah, um, exactly. But Tyler kind of took the first step in a way. Yeah, I reached out on Facebook and I was like, you know what? Why not? And I was like, hey, remember when we talked about doing something together? Let's do it. (laughs) And then we met up for coffee and talked about a game plan. He brought in uh, Brian and Lee and the rest is history. Right on. And who is Brian and Lee? 
Brian is our guitar player. Brian Turner. Uh, Brian Turner, the turn man. Um, nobody calls him that, but <laughs> maybe they'll start. And then Lee Wiggins is our drummer. Your meeting story really points to your age difference. It kind of draws a circle around it. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work within your music as far as what influences are you pulling from? So I think there's a blend. Um, I definitely pull from more of like the late 90s, early 2000s in punk rock and alt rock like Paramore, Panic at the Disco, those types of things. And so John probably pulls from like an earlier 90s rock because he was really into the rock scene. True. I, I mean, I, I like genres through all ages, but I really came of age in the late 80s, early 90s when like Pixies and Fugazi and Nirvana and Mudhoney were all coming up. So that's kind of like my center of gravity. But I feel like because we came up in different eras, we we have different backgrounds in music. And so to me, it's fun and you know to hear music that Tyler likes or bands that she's into and try to figure them out and how to make it fit to what I like. And if we get to the point where we get a song that both of us like, then I feel like it's going to have some dimension to it. Well, let's talk about your latest single, Not Sweet Enough. It touches a bit on women's rights and assumptions of appropriate female behavior. What was your writing process on this particular song? So I definitely wanted to have a song that spoke about issues that were personal to me, but also that were relevant to what's going on, especially in Georgia with the government regulations on women's rights. So we thought it was a good time to kind of write a song in a punk fashion because that's historically what punk does is talk about the man and how to stick it to the man and stuff. Do you feel like in a lot of your songs, you're starting to bring up things that are important to you that way? And was that originally a goal or some sort of a a morph? I think it was probably more of a morph. I feel like we kind of did take a a bit of a turn halfway through uh, the Trump era. I think our natural tendency is to like sing about we're we're both really positive people we would sing about happier things or emotions or romance but like the world was just kind of it felt like it was just getting worse and worse and it felt like a little bit almost irresponsible or also just oblivious to keep writing like songs that were sort of you know light-hearted nature sudden it just felt really easy to write songs that were pointing out all these glaring problems with our society and like in just all this rock and roll coming out and like finding a home and all these sentiments that we shared you recently collaborated with a guy who goes by the name of the punk cellist right yes i'd love for you to tell a little bit about just how you ended up connecting with him and and what you created The punk cellist is a young performer in the Cape Cod area that has a very awesome Instagram feed where he just does covers of punk classics with his cello. And it's amazing because he captures the energy of it and also like the awesome melodies that are in punk that sometimes get obscured by just all the volume and anger, but like he just distills it down. So we're big fans of his. And so we reached out to him and asked if he wanted to do a collaboration with us on not sweet enough and he was open to it and he does like multiple tracks and it was going to be just purely instrumental but then we also took the main melody out and let tyler sing it so we have another version of it where tyler is singing in operatic form while he's playing as a cellist you want you think i'm dirty i'm dirty and unworthy and yet you're always looking back at me
Rock. So we brought him over to Dan Dixon's studio uh, at Please Please. And we um, kind of just mixed them down and added some percussion that Lee Wiggins put in. And together we kind of created this classical ensemble around the song for Tyler singing. It's really amazing. And I did not know your vocals could do that. Um, This is definitely the first time that I have let other people hear me sing in this style. So that's groundbreaking and new for me. And it's exciting because I'm interested in exploring this kind of style uh, more openly. It was definitely fun (laughs) to sing because I kind of imagine myself as an opera singer, a classical one that's on like a big stage and a really cool dress and yeah, I could get down with that. Well, Lois particularly is going to be a little sad that she missed this with the Aww. punk cellist. We are huge Lois fans. Yes. Hi, Lois. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes. And I'm talking to Lacibu Grands, Tyler Simone Moulton, and John Renault. It seemed as though your video content really, really amped up over 2020. And I was wondering if that was something that you had planned for or if that was some sort of result of the pandemic and just having more time and not playing live. I think it was a little of both. We definitely had planned to make more music videos for each release, but the pandemic definitely gave us an opportunity to do that. So it was helpful in a way. Tyler's right. One thing that's different with this band than than any other band I've been in is that we do a video for pretty much every song. And so every one gets its own treatment, gets its own sort of attention. And we kind of live the vibe of that song and that video for like months. And I think we would have done that even if COVID didn't hit. But when COVID hit, there was nothing else to do but make videos. So I feel like we just went much bigger on them. It became the only thing we did really for a while. It felt like we were more like, you know, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, content creators more than a band. And, And that was kind of fun, but it's also really, really good to get back to being a band. (laughs) Definitely. I get that. So the video for Hot Glue Gun has our hero, Tyler Simone, being hunted by John, who I can only (laughs) assume you're playing the man. Myself. (laughs) I mean, I would never do any harm to my very close friend, but I am a bit of a taskmaster, so in some respects there was uh, some symbolism there. share a little bit of that filming process because I know that was filmed here in Atlanta in one of our city's favorite spots right sure joystick game bar is a spot which I have spent many a night losing on the Pac-Man high score but uh, it was really cool to shoot that video there because you know it's very signature for Atlanta and then it has like the video game aspects so it was really nice to do it there the first video for Hot Glue Gun, the original, was we filmed primarily on a green screen in my garage here in Edgewood, section of Atlanta, early in the COVID era. So we were hyper paranoid and really yeah. pretty uncomfortable. And we had, of course, masks and like just at that early stage, you really just didn't know how right. how dangerous everything was. And it felt honestly like we were maybe taking unnecessary risks by even doing it at all. It was only cameraman and Tyler in the garage. Like we just didn't have anybody hanging around or taking pictures or whatever. We were just like super careful. And then the whole video is actually Tyler inside a video game, like a 90s era video game, mm-hmm. beating up you know people, myself included, mm-hmm. and tackling a would-be Trump type of character and taking him down. And so guys thought, oh, it'd be cool if we started as the video with Tyler walking into an arcade and putting a quarter in just to set the stage. So that's when we we called over to Joystick and they, you know, no bars were open at the time. So they let us come and film. Uh, Now we had Dan Dixon from Please Please remix that song and he did a totally different version. It's like much more like electronic dance music style and it's darker.
so it vibes totally differently. Um, Post-apocalyptic vibe. Yeah, but I would say one other thing that that experience taught me for sure is that like I like having two versions of every song, at least two, because you know there's so many different ways to do a song. Like you mm-hmm. don't, it sucks that you could only if you only get to do one. So like instead have two versions of it that show different ways it could be perceived or felt. That's kind of how I. I feel like we're falling into that pattern and I like that a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of people might not realize how much genuinely good art gets thrown away within the creative process sure. just so you can land somewhere. Right, yeah. just because you have to pick the best version that you put out. All right, going back to the videos at Joystick, I feel like we might have buried the lead a little bit because this remix has a different video. And the video has an element to it that I personally have never seen before. I don't know how common it is, but it has an AR filter. How does that work? Well, the AR filter works by a person using their cellular device um, and (laughs) going on Instagram and using your head as a pointer. Basically, it's like a first-person shooter game, and you're using your head to control your direction. So your video has become a game. For sure. So we we did take the music from the remix and we created a video game that is played in the stories section of Instagram. And you hit this little icon with the three little stars and it launches a filter that is actually a game where you can shoot uh, these roses that are coming at you. Pace Magazine uh, indicated that it was one of the first ways to vibe on, a, on music this way. And it was just a way for us to put music in a, somewhere where people didn't expect it. Like, I c- now consider it part of the, the fun of being an artist is not just creating work, but like finding new ways to get people to interact with that work. So if like, you're playing a video game and you hear hot glue gun in the background and you're shooting stuff and having fun like that is how especially younger generations connect with music so that gave us a chance to reach them so this saturday at bog social and supply in the west end you're playing your first show in over a year and your show's part of punk black's juneteenth celebration show can you tell us a little more about the art collective and how you got involved with them So we are so excited to be playing our very first live show with Punk Black, who, like you said, is an art collective. They focus on promoting Black, Indigenous, people of color that explore art in various forms. So there you have visual artists, musicians, blurds, they call them, Black nerds, and people who are just into alternative culture generally, and they like to promote those things. Yeah, super cool. How did you get hooked up with them? Uh, Through social media. That's how everybody meets these days. I read an article about them that was in The Guardian. Mm. I remember telling Tyler, I was like, these guys seem awesome. We got to go to one of their shows and we should send them some stuff because I love everything I'm hearing and reading about them. I took Tyler's mom to go see them. We saw Concrete God and like we met the founder Vaughn Phoenix for the first time and we were blown away by their vibe. You know, we did introduce ourselves and they were super supportive of us like you might expect and it's been a really great relationship ever since. So, you know, Von Phoenix runs Punk Black and he helps bands of color all over the world, honestly. And we reached out to him not too long ago because our guitar player has actually been in Italy for a while. And so Vaughn is a fantastic guitar player. He also plays in a band called Howling Star, who we love. And Vaughn has agreed to play guitar with us for the show coming up uh, on Saturday, which is awesome. Yeah, we're super excited to have Vaughn play with us. How excited are you guys to play a live show again? On a scale from 1 to 10, I would say an (laughs) 11.675. You can tell when a live show is going well. You really can't tell when a live stream is going well. Live streaming is kind of frustrating in a lot of ways. It's like you never know whether the technology is really working. You really can't get any much energy from anyone until after the show unless you stop and go run up and look at the phone or whatever and so it's just hard especially bands i feel like live streaming as a like an acoustic guitar player or a solo player is one thing it's kind of more intimate but like in a band it just feels like 
I, I think it's just kind of a frustrating experience. I mean, it's still good to do because one, the band still like stays fresh and functional. Uh, and also, like Tyler said not too long ago, like it just shows people that music's still happening, which is very mm -hmm. important during the dark days of the COVID era. But like to be able to play in front of some people, even a small crowd, I would be very excited to do so. Yeah, no, it's definitely night and day compared to having to set up all the sound equipment. Either you're going to have a show that's like easy to do and it's going to sound horrible or, you know, it's going to have a lot of technical and then you're not going to really enjoy performing. So we're definitely excited to be playing a traditional show. Tyler Simone Moulton and John Renault of the band Le Cibu Grand. Le Cibu Grand will be playing at Bog Social and Supply. On Saturday as part of Punk Black's Juneteenth pop-up show celebration. You can learn more about the Cebu Grand on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, filling in for Lois Reitzes. Atlanta multimedia art collective Punk Black is known globally for putting on shows that feature musicians and artists of color. Vaughn Phoenix is the founder of Punk Black, and he joins us now via Zoom. Vaughn, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, thank you. I'd love to know the quick history behind Punk Black. I know the organization's about six years old, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, we're, we're getting up there. We're getting a little old. Indeed. So tell me how it came to be. Um, Punk Black actually started um, as a series of house parties. When we first started Punk Black, we really didn't think that it was going to be what it is today. Um, we, you know, we just wanted to do a show that featured people of color like in the, um, in the rock scene, just because we didn't have anything like that. Besides, you know, Afropunk back in the day, which we looked up to. But of course, around that time, they really started deviating from the path of, uh, you know, POC rock music. So we started you know, just throwing our own shows in Atlanta, different house parties. Um, of course, we went through our ups and downs for a while until we started, you know, doing venues. And eventually we included cosplayers and other parts of nerd lore just because it seemed like an easy segment for all of us since we were all huge nerds already. <laughs> so that's, um, yeah, I would say that's like a, a good brief history of uh, Punk Black, how it came to be. And it grew quick. You have traveled the world putting on shows, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um some shows here, New York, Chicago, LA, Oakland, Florida, and we're actually going to new places uh, next year. We're actually doing Bangkok and Tokyo, which is going to be a little crazy. I know punk black means a lot of things to many people in our city. Can you speak a little bit about what the organization means to you? Uh, punk black for me sort of like represents um, a community that houses a rock community in Atlanta that sort of allows it to live. You know, I'm also in a band myself called um, Howling Star. I've been on the uh, Atlanta rock scene for like the last 10 years. So, you know, for a long time, I feel like us and a lot of other organizations, and a lot of bands, we were trying to make a farm in Atlanta, but we were trying to make like a farm on concrete. And for me, um, punk black is sort of like the soil. You know, we're actually like starting a farm to where we can grow these new bands, these old bands, these uh, new artists, these new cosplayers. It's just like a place where we can all develop. So with COVID going on, will this be the first show you've put on in over a year? Uh, well, at least live show. Uh, we had to, of course, when COVID happened, adapt like everyone else did. So we started doing live shows from, you know, from people's houses. We would just give people access to our Facebook page and we we're sort of running our Facebook page like a pseudo venue. But that's pretty much what we did through COVID. But this would be our first in real life sort of in-person show in over a year. That's just awesome. I know everyone is very excited to get back to hearing live music and putting it on and playing it. And it's so nice to know that you guys are doing your part. As far as choosing this exact event, can you speak at all to why you wanted to throw a Juneteenth celebration? Of course, you know, we know the history of Juneteenth, but it just made sense to um, celebrate with um, people of color doing dope stuff. And of course, like, um, 
as far as punk block goes, we always celebrate, you know, sort of the alternative lifestyle, not doing like the stereotypical things, especially being in Atlanta. I know there's a lot of hip hop shows and stuff going on. So again, we just wanted to celebrate people of color doing things they aren't suspected to do, which is like what punk block's all about. Right on. And so aside from the three bands that will be playing the show, there's other artistic elements too, right? Uh, we have, actually have a little bit of everything. You know, we'll be selling clothes. We have another um, group that's selling clothes as well called Mind Vomit. They do really, really dope stuff as well. We also have, you know, some painters. We have people that do makeup, just like a, a little bit of everything. We even have someone who's who's coming out to help people with, like, law, just offer their, their services as, as far as uh, the area of law. No way. Yeah, it was a, it's, it's a, little, it's a little crazy. That's kind of cool, actually. That's an incredible way to serve the community. Thank you. Yeah, we think so, too. We think the show on Juneteenth is actually going to be a really, really good one. Can you speak at all to the venue? Have you had a chance to play at Boggs before? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've actually Boggs Supply and Social. Um, we did a show last year in February. I think that was our last punk black that we did before uh, COVID happened. Boggs is honestly awesome. You have like a really, really good stage, like really, really good um, venue, nice bar. Um, Gaja is always there serving food, which is great because Gaja serves really great food. Super wonderful staff. You know, in a lot of venues in Atlanta and like beyond Atlanta, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, because like working in venues and bars can be a difficult life. A lot of times you book places and you don't always get like the warmest of welcomes, but that's not the case with Bugs. Right on. Well, I hope people get a chance to check it out. I know it. it's only a couple years old, right? Mm, I, th- I think it might only be two years old. Um, I feel like they just opened up a couple months before the pandemic started. Right. Oh, the timing of it all. Oh, yeah. Aside from the show on Saturday, what's next for Punk Black? What are you guys hoping to do? Punk Black right now is a media network online, but we're trying to make the jump to be a sort of like a full-fledged network, you know, sort of like an MTV, but cooler, you know, and the focus is people of color and the rock art sort of cosplay nerd lore community. So right now we're raising money for a physical location to where we can do a lot of shooting. If anyone's interested in helping us fund that endeavor, they can hit us up at punkblack.com slash donate. Von Phoenix, founder of the Punk Black Art Collective. Back in 2019, photographer Arvin Temkar followed the Punk Black Collective to a series of shows resulting in the photography exhibit POC, Punks of Color, currently on view along the West Side Trail of the Atlanta Beltline. You can see Temkar's work through the end of June, and back when the exhibit went up in April, City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Temkar, and he talked about when his interest in punk rock began. I started getting drawn to punk rock because I was kind of, you know, felt like an outcast, and I was kind of angry, and I was, you know, I was just kind of drawn to, like, the attitude of of punk rock. Do you feel like there's a clear distinction between punk music and grunge? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the kind of punk that I was drawn to, like in the early 2000s, you know, I felt like that was a lot faster. And, you know, I was kind of into more of the poppy stuff, the more melodic stuff. And yeah, I definitely think like in terms of like, if you're going to compare like um, the Ramones or uh, the Clash with somebody like Nirvana, I think there's a distinction. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my husband about this last night, and he said that grunge music is a little bit slower paced, a little bit depressed, a little bit angrier, where punk music's just like kind of in your face, fast paced, just like kind of silly lyrics. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I think that's what I was drawn to it, like the energy. There's like a lot of energy, and I feel like going to a punk show is like one of the most kind of energetic and kind of um, fun kind of concert experiences that you can have. Who are some punk bands you listen to now? So I, I kind of just listened to what I used to listen to when I was growing up, like Rancid, the Dropkick Murphys, they're an Irish punk band, bands like that. And all of those bands you'll probably notice are like super white. <laughs> right. So this exhibit explicitly looks at Afro-punk bands. Did you listen to any Afro-punk bands prior to photographing these people? No, what drew me to this scene was I moved to Atlanta from San Francisco And I just had this experience for much of my kind of life going to punk shows in the States, like being one of the only people of color at the shows. And it's something that you can kind of feel, you know, I went to a Flogging Molly show in Oakland 
with my friend who is half Japanese and Flogging Molly is an Irish punk band and I really love them. And we were happened to be standing next to a couple of Latino guys and we kind of made eye contact and one of the guys was like, oh, look, we found each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it's just something you kind of notice. I mean, you know, it's just an experience um, for people, I think, uh, when they're going to some of these mainstream punk shows. So I came to Atlanta and I found out about Punk Black. They're a collective here that organize um, shows by bands of color. Um, I was just like super excited to hear about them um, and I wanted to kind of start documenting the scene. I felt like it would be very visual and I felt like a personal connection to it. Yeah. Why do you think the concept of black punk music seems so foreign? In mainstream society and in just in our cultural thinking, we think of certain types of music as being kind of related to various races or ethnicities. So like you just kind of think of rock and roll and punk rock and country music as like very white genres, which is really interesting because in all of these genres, there were there have always been black musicians who, who are like kind of integral to the, to the birth of this music. I know that for country music, um, it's really interesting because when people started coming down to the South to record country music, they found that they could market the music better if they um, kind of separated like race music, like blues and stuff from hillbilly music, which they said was like, I mean, which, you know, the recording artists were like white recording artists. But in fact, there were black and white artists who were who were recording all of the same songs. Um, so I think part of it is just like marketing and what grew out of that. Do you think there's a rise in black punk culture? Well, I think, you know, Afropunk, um, which is another organization that kind of started out in in the black punk scene and world kind of helped popularize in the culture this kind of idea of black punk but it's it's always been there and i don't know if there's a rise in black punk but i think there is definitely a rise of people of color being in these spaces whether it's punk rock or rock and roll or country um, and I'm, I'm just like really interested in country as well. So I can like, you know, I, I feel like there are a lot of examples now of black country musicians and it's like the same kind of idea where, you know, people are like, oh, that is not what I expected when in fact it's kind of been there all along. Right. Little Nas X comes to my mind, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm sure there are other black country musicians prior to him, but I feel like he really brought it to the forefront of like, hey, this isn't a black or white genre. Like I can sing, you know, what I want and it doesn't matter the color of my skin. Yeah, definitely. And I think like just that representation is really important. Um, so I'm half Filipino and half Indian. And I was just reading about um, an Asian music producer who kind of got his start in the industry playing in punk bands. He was a drummer in punk bands and he said it was so hard for him to find a band that he could stay with. He kept like, you know, nobody wanted to play with him because he says that they didn't think he looked like their heroes. And he just had a really hard time with that. And now he's a music producer and he's helping all these other musicians of color kind of make it through this industry. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So can you describe your exhibit Punks of Color and what the images showcase? Mm -hmm. So Punks of Color is an exhibit that I made when I was following Punk Black um, over the summer of 2019 to various shows that they were putting on around the country. So there are, um, I think there are images from Atlanta, Chicago, and DC. Um, and some of them are concert images and some of them are, you know, kind of behind the scenes. Like I think there's a photo of somebody spray painting, you know, a t-shirt, which is like super punk rock. Um, and then there are also portraits of people that I met at the concert. And I decided to put the portraits together with some of the other images because I wanted to showcase like not only like the, the concert vibe and, um, you know, the energy, but also the individual and, you know, how special it is to be an individual in the scene. I chose the diptychs by um, finding images that I thought spoke well to each other. There's another image here uh, where one of the band members is wearing a hat that says make racists afraid again kind of a play on the MAGA hat. And there's an image of, of a guy, um, the portrait of the guy kind of looking surprised or, you know, yeah, he has this interesting look on his face. And um, I felt like those those two images like paired well together. I know some of them are like screaming at the camera. Did you prompt them to do that? 
It's, yeah, so that was um, a singer for a band and this is, you know, she was screaming on stage and it was like so intense and emotional and awesome. So I asked her, uh, you know, just sing for me or mimic what she was doing on stage. Yeah, you can really feel that coming through. Can you describe the collective Punk Black? Yeah, so they're an organization that facilitates concerts and shows and, you know, various events. So it's a group of people who are kind of bringing these bands together and creating this community. They're like, they've got a really big social media presence and a really big um, community of people. And it's not, they're not just um, about like rock or punk music. They're also kind of interested in nerd culture, um, cosplay and, um, and, and politics. All of the photographs are black and white with directional, like really bright lighting. Did this style add to the intensity you're wanting to convey? Yeah, so I mean, I chose to use that style because I feel like it's um, reminiscent of like classic rock and roll photography. And it's also like really in your face, which is like what punk rock is all about. And I chose black and white because I felt like that was just a classic way to portray what was happening. Was that uh, representative of looking at more of people of color doing punk music? And that's why you chose black and white? You know, I didn't even think of that, but I love that. And <laughs> you can take it. <laughs> I'll take it. It's it's. Uh, but really, when when I was thinking about black and white, I was thinking because you know I'm not I'm not black or white. Although I think everybody in in the images that I show are are black. Um, I have images of Asian people and Latino people and stuff like that as well. So when I was making that kind of decision to use color or black and white. Some of these images are published on, on Buzzfeed in color, but um, for my own artistic purposes, I, I prefer black and white because I, I feel like it gives it that classic punk rock look. Yeah, definitely. It, it's more intense, like just with the shadows and everything like that, it brings out that intensity in punk music. In an Arts ATL conversation, you described yourself as a walking identity crisis. What did you mean by that? Um, so, like I said before, I'm half Filipino and I'm half Indian and I grew up kind of all over the world. My dad worked for the army. So I spent some time here in Georgia. I spent some time at Illinois and I spent some time uh, in Japan on an army base. And then afterwards I kind of moved around like bouncing from coast to coast and, um, you know, New York to California. I lived in Guam for a while. Um, and so all of these, you know, all the things that people typically kind of um, draw on for their identities, like where they grew up um, or, you know, their ethnicity or race are complicated for me. So it's something that I, I think about a lot um, as to like my, my place. And so that's part of why I'm really drawn to just kind of American culture in general, is that I find that, you know, out of all of the things for me that distinguish me one of the one of the things that ties everything together is this idea of being American mm. when following punk black did you feel more at home by photographing them and going on tour with them uh in some senses I did um you know I felt very happy to be documenting this scene that I wasn't familiar with before and that I felt like was really really important in terms of representation and in terms of bringing community together. It's like, it's so strange that uh, in punk rock, which is a community of people who feel marginalized, you can feel marginalized within that community, which is something that, you know, I felt and I thought it was really great that punk black was bringing all this together. And at the same time, um, I'm not black, I'm, um, you know, Asian. And so, you know, there's, there's also that kind of cultural difference in traveling with the organizers. Although I think there's definitely like, solidarity. You know, it's, it's a different cultural experience in some ways. Photographer Arvin Temkar and City Lights producer Summer Evans. Temkar's exhibit, POC, Punks of Color, is currently on view on the West Side Trail of the Atlanta Beltline. You can learn more about Temkar as well as the art collective Punk Black on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, filling in for Lois Reitzes. A few years ago, City Lights host and executive producer Lois Reitzis got a chance to talk with two award-winning Atlanta-based illustrators from the world of Black Panther, Afua Richardson and Brian Stelfries. Their conversation started with Stelfries speaking about why there's been a revival of comics over the last few years. It's a combination of things. Um, I think the first thing is that um, when I was younger, uh, comic books were 
primarily about just you know really large guys beating up on each other and uh and i think over the years uh, as i've grown comics have grown uh, so the stories are a lot more diverse you have a lot more diverse people doing comics uh, in fact um, about 10 years ago we started to get an influx of women drawing and writing comics and that kind of changed the game so i think comics are more approachable now uh, whereas when i was a kid only the geekiest of the geeky uh, would uh, would read comics so so i think that and uh, honestly i think uh, lately there's been sort of a loss of hope and comics is about uh, that that hopeful that uh, all the comic book characters really boil down to if you had the ability to do something these are the things that you would do and i think uh, i think right now people are are looking for that uh, for that altruistic escape mm, we are desperately in need of heroes absolutely what do you think i noticed um that when brian mentioned growing up he talked about big guys beating up other mean guys (laughs) wonder woman was around but it's understandable that you not you might not have read wonder woman um where do the women figure into this I, I read comics when I was a very, very young and rowdy girl, and uh, I gravitated more towards the aliens and mutants and the weirdos and outcasts, like people who weren't accepted, but they still had the courage to be kind. And even though they weren't thanked, they did what they thought was right. And they couldn't hide who they were, and I was really, really tall for my age, so I was... <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, when I was about um, seven or eight years old, I was maybe 5'2", five 5'3". Five wow. Yeah, I was a tall kid. I, people thought I was an adult, so I was hovering over all of my uh, all of my classmates, and uh, I would always break up fights and, and stop bullies. And God, there was even one time, I must have been reading too much Wonder Woman, actually. <laughs> and uh, my friend, I was in the band, as, as if I wasn't nerdy enough. Um, and my friend had his instrument on his shoulder with his book bag, and we were I was living in New York, and it was the New York subway, and uh, somebody ran by and grabbed his book bag and ran. He had his, his instrument, his bus pass, his wallet, everything. Everything was in that book bag. Of course, you feel like that when you're a teenager. And so I was like, oh, no, 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 not on my Wonder woman watch. So I took off my shoes, and I I ran after the guy and I threw it and hit him in the back of the head. I probably could have gotten killed if he had it. Wait, this was in a New York subway station. Yes. Okay, and I should tell listeners because you can't see a fool, but she stopped growing, I think, when she was eight years old because you're not much over five feet now. So here you are taking on. Um, you know, a thief in the subway station. What was the outcome? Well, the kid looked back at me, horrified. Like, what just happened? He dropped the bag and he ran. Nice. Um, and I thought to myself, like, God, what did I just do? But reading these stories, you, you get to know these characters, and, and especially with characters like Black Panther, which you you see people going to the movies, and it just gives them this amazing sense of pride. And they start to question themselves and their lives, and they uh, they take these scenarios and they adopt them and they say what would I do in these situations what can I do well I don't have you know vibranium in a super suit but I I can stop my friend from getting (laughs) robbed or you know maybe I can make myself stronger and put myself in a position where I can help I'm very intrigued hearing you speak in beautiful metaphor, I might add, about (laughs) aliens. And and it's just so, it makes it so easy to understand how people can identify with the essence of a being if they don't necessarily look like any of us. That's right. That's also kind of sad because when we look like ourselves, all these barriers or fears arise, and that's 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 been a long tradition in uh, in comics. I mean, even uh, 
a classic character like Superman. Um, Superman was a book that was written and illustrated by children of Jewish immigrants. So for them, they were the outcasts uh, in living in the States. So it was kind of kind of interesting that these people would do a comic book about a person from another planet uh, and that person from another planet living the ideal of this country. Uh, so there's a little bit of self-fulfillment in the stories that they do. Very so, much so. So comics, and, and I think uh, as, a, as a lifelong geek, you know, it, there is like this weird thing of, of all of us, um, we had a superpower when we were young. Either we can draw really well or we can play the piano or we're a math genius or something like that. But it didn't make us cool. <laughs> you know, so so it's just like you can you can see us all gravitating towards these characters that had something unique about them, but they were still offbeat. And uh, and I think a lot of the uh, comic book characters like Spider-Man, uh, he never got the girl. You know, he always, you know, had the superpower and would solve crimes and do all this cool stuff. But he was remained being an outcast. And I think all of us felt like that. I remember when I read about um Siegel and Schuster. Who knew? Who knew Superman was Jewish? (laughs) And now with Black Panther, there is this marvelous celebration of of identity and identification. And you don't have to be of African American or African background to be excited about the success of this. I have to ask, Brian, what is it like working with the literary genius oh. that is Tony Sikos? Uh, well, I, I, I have to tell you, he's, he's one of, and, and I read his work uh, before I started working with him, so I'm a, a huge fan of, uh, of what he does. And I just assumed, because he was the great and powerful, you know, sort of Ta-Nehisi Coates, that I would never uh, communicate with him. But uh, but once we started working together, I collaborated with him more than any other writer I've ever worked with, including writers I've been in the same studio with. <laughs> so so it was like really, just uh, we became brothers just instantly. And uh, and he would comment on everything that was turned in. He was just absolutely ego-free. I mean, uh, when I would suggest things, he would incorporate that into the storyline. So it was just just absolutely a joy working with him. That is so heartening, so beautiful to hear. And the the thing about it is, is is like when a person gets the Genius Award, you know, (laughs) the MacArthur Genius Award, I, I automatically go, yeah, 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 right. But then when I started working with him, I was just like, yeah, he is. He's a genius. Ah, <laughs> uh, well deserved. So, people of color being into comics is not a new thing, mm-hmm. and it seems that in the larger conversation, though, it's still being treated as something of a novelty. Why do you think that the comic book culture and nerd culture in general gets coded as white? I, th- I think uh, when you when you look at superheroes um, over the uh, decades, um, a lot of people that end up uh, illustrating comics, you know, are they have that standard white male kind of uh, you know look. So I think people do comics about themselves, uh, and uh, it's not to cast blame or anything like that. It's just that those are the people that did comics, so they those were the people that were buying comics so that was the industry and uh and i think to um stan lee and jack kirby's credit they actually ended up creating a bunch of um you know sort of uh, black characters and the characters of all these different races uh, even though the audience initially wasn't there for it and uh and as more diverse people started producing comics those people brought a little bit of themselves uh, into the uh, the uh, the industry. So I think it's a. Uh, I think now that there are more people interested, there are more comics being produced for them. Uh, one of the things that I that really kind of blew me away was 
when I went to um, Japan for a, a comic book summit, it really opened my eyes because I thought I was really into superhero comics uh, and I was really into doing covers and, and it was all about the art for me. But when I went into that culture, I realized that comics were everything. It wasn't just superheroes, but it was people playing basketball. It was people playing golf. It was uh, mothers learning how to feed their babies formula. Uh, it was all done in, in comic form. Uh, and, uh, and one of the strangest things was um, I was hanging out with uh, uh, this guy, uh, Mr. Matsutani, who is the uh, head of Tezuka Productions. Um, and Tezuka is uh, who produced Astro Boy and, uh, and the Kimba the White Lion and, and all this classic Japanese work. And we were just on the subway, and uh, and he was saying that, well, American comics are about a small market. Japanese comics are for everyone. And then he kind of like leaned back and said, uh, can everyone show me your comics? And literally everyone on the train pulled out a comic book and held it up. And, <laughs> and I was just like, oh, man, so I'm really paying attention to this little part of just this great potential and uh and quite frankly it, it changed the way i thought of comics and eventually changed the way that i that i do comics now i i do comics for everyone illustrators brian stelfries and afua richardson speaking with city lights host and executive producer lois reitzis they spoke back in 2018 and you can hear that interview in its entirety on our website wabe.org slash city lights You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author Annette Gordon-Reed tells us about her new book on Juneteenth. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights and check out our website, wabe.org slash citylights, where you can listen back to interviews and archived shows. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.